Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's community cookbook shop. It's been over a year since we posted an episode of this podcast, and it's great to be back for a special episode. Since the pandemic started, we've been hosting our author talks virtually and posting videos of them to our YouTube channel, sometimes because of technical issues that we've all experienced during our Zoom lives, you know, the glitching video, the connection that drops. We have great conversations that don't necessarily lend themselves to a video format, but that's where a podcast can come to the rescue. Late last year, we had the tremendous pleasure of hosting Deborah Madison as she discussed her memoir, An Onion in My Pocket, with Seattle writer and broadcaster Nancy Leeson. We thought sharing this conversation with one of the food world's vegetable-loving trailblazers would be the perfect way to welcome spring and to wrap up Women's History Month. Here's Deborah Madison and An Onion in My Pocket. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm Lara Hamilton. I have a cookbook shop here in Seattle called Book Larder. And when it is not the midst of a global pandemic, we do uh, live author events and cooking classes here in the kitchen in the shop. And so we have taken those to Zoom given the current circumstances and are so happy that that gives us the opportunity to have so many of you join us from all over the world. So thank you so much for tuning in this evening. We are absolutely delighted to welcome one of my personal heroes, Deborah Madison, to our virtual kitchen. She is the author now of this wonderful memoir, An Onion in My Pocket. I often say that Deborah's book, Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, which is now the new Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, was sort of my gateway cookbook. And, you know, Book Larder actually might not be here if I hadn't learned that cookbooks could be more than just a means to an end for getting some recipes, that they had a lot to offer in terms of the stories they tell, the context that they provide to the recipes, and how just a really strong writing voice and an encouraging sort of hand in the kitchen like Deborah's can be so important. So um, she is going to be in conversation with Nancy Leeson, who is a local writer and radio host, and she also teaches cooking classes, and we are lucky enough to have her teach with us here at Book Larder sometimes. She is going to interview Deborah about the book, which is, of course, available on our website at booklarder.com, and you can support this author talk by purchasing it there. I am going to now turn things over to Nancy Leeson and Deborah Madison. Okay, thanks so much, Laura. And I'm really excited to be here with Deborah myself. And Deborah, one of the yeah. things I like to do is get to some quick and easy questions right away. So I want you to just answer these as you see fit and as swiftly as you can. I call this the quick fire challenge. So, according to your parents, what was the first sentence you ever uttered? Oh, I was, I like cows. <laughs> and I still do. And you still do. And true or false, as a child, you practiced taxidermy. I did. I did. Well, you also mentioned that your graduating class at UC Santa Cruz, Ravi Shankar and Albert Hitchcock spoke. Albert Hitchcock. What did they say? Can you remember like one funny thing or interesting thing one of them said? 
I don't remember at all. It was a long time ago. <laughs> okay. Well, but I thought it was pretty amazing that they were there. You know who spoke at my college graduation? The governor. Like you get Ravi Shankar and Alfred Hitchcock and I get the governor. So you wrote a book with your husband, Patrick, called What We Eat When We Eat Alone. It's a mm-hmm. book that you now refer to as a as a flop. I've never read it. And now I want to know, what do you eat when you eat alone? Yeah. <laughs> I eat uh, sautés, vegetable sautés. I eat a lot of quesadillas. Um, what else do I eat? I don't know. You know, I eat leftovers. <laughs> like well, a lot of people do, I'm sure. I've been eating more leftovers lately since I've been cooking so much. Yeah. And here's just an an odd one that I was curious about. You've lived in New Mexico for decades. I want to know, have you ever eaten a Kool-Aid pickle? No, I've never heard of such a thing. It's a famous famous thing. Um, I'd never heard about it until I drove through Santa Fe with your friend, uh, Cheryl Jameson. She made me eat one and I am glad I ate it once and I hope to never eat one again. <laughs> it sounds horrible. Indeed it does. It also looks horrible just for the record. So, okay. Um, okay, let's get talking about the book a little bit. Once you reach a certain age, mine say, looking back on the years known as our youth becomes a common pastime. And in your new memoir, your first chapter is called 20 Missing Years. Uh, those years are the your years in your 20s and 30s. There's a hugely important time for anybody. And for you, it was a time you spent at San Francisco's Zen Center, studying and practicing Zen Buddhism. Living that life, you write at the beginning of the book, that until recently, I ignored that stretch of time. It was an awkward pause that I haven't known what to do about. And you ask yourself, should I admit to those years, ignore them? try to explain them. You, you say that you call yourself a recovering Buddhist. <laughs> I never should have said that. <laughs> like, because my takeaway after reading the book is that you appreciated the spirituality and the simplicity and, and the Buddhist community. And it's clear that your time at the Zen Center eventually brought you to your calling, first as a cook, then as a chef, then as a cookbook author. And while you tackle those questions in the memoir, the questions of should you ignore it, should you admit to that time, the question I I have and still have is, what made you stay for nearly 20 years? Well, I really enjoyed practice life a lot. So that's why I stayed. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you something that I, I feel like I shouldn't tell you, which is that I really knew next to nothing about you before I read your memoir. And I knew that you were the first chef at Greens, that you were a prolific mm-hmm. cookbook author. And I learned from your memoir that you don't see yourself, as many people do, as the queen of vegetarianism, but instead as what I might describe as sort of the reticent high priestess of vegetarianism. At a time when we eat what we eat and what we eat can be polarizing and political, I want you to talk about being reticent about being a vegetarian. So my feeling was when I really sat down and thought about it is that it's much more important that food be served with and cooked and offered with generosity and heart and care than whether there's meat on the plate 
or not. So that's what was important to me. But I had to write the whole book to find that out. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I loved in the book is you wrote about vegetarian food in the restaurant, in restaurants over the decades. It was so funny and sad and true. (laughs) Do you remember what you said about in the 60s? I think it was eggplant parmesan. (laughs) If you didn't want to eat meat, you got eggplant parmesan. And it was very breaded and gooey and cheesy and heavy and, you know, like that. It it was good, of course, but but it was um, not really good for you. (laughs) And the 60s, do you remember, recall what you said in the 60s, you got quiche. And oh, the, yeah, that's right. You remember what the 80 because I remember this so clearly because I waited tables at the time. And whenever it was like, oh, there's a vegetarian it was an Italian restaurant. So, of course, they got something you mentioned. Pasta Primavera, probably. Primavera, that's right. And in the 90s, it was. It was the Portobello mushroom, I think. <laughs> OK, so you wrote today, it's not as much a vegetable or a res- recipe as a form. The the latest thing, what is it? It's the bowl. Right. Tell us what you think about that bowl. The bowl. I don't think much about bowls (laughs) because I think they've really affected how we see food and photograph food and look at food because bowls lend themselves quite nicely to an iPhone. Yeah, one thing that you wrote in that passage that cracked me up was you said, I think one of the reasons bowls have become so popular is that they look great photographed from above, um, whether you're a designer with an iPhone or a professional photographer. And then you said, but food photography is a whole other subject. Don't get me started. I'd like to get you started because. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll, I'll say a little bit about it. Okay. I think it's very dated. You know, and when I redid the new vegetarian cooking for everyone, all the photographs came out and the drawings, which I would have been happy to leave in. But it it is very dated. And for example, when I used to do photographs at the restaurant for magazines like Family Circle, you know, they they would make ice cream out of lard or, you know, that because they had these very, very hot lamps you know, that it would melt food. So you had to use shaving cream instead of whipped cream and and um, things like that, you know. So all the food we made, we had to fall out. And that's very different now. But I think we do look back at photographs and we kind of laugh at them. They just seem so dated and and it's okay. But it is what it is. And there are a couple passages in your book where you portray your parents through photographs. And both of those passages to me are really arresting. Um, the first one describes a photograph of your father and another one describes a photograph of your mother. I would love for you to grab your book if you can and turn to page 22 and read the section about your dad. Oh, it says uh, small black and white Photograph with scalloped edges shows my father standing in the long summer grass on one of my parents' farms. In his early 30s, he was a handsome man with strong, clear features and a thick, wavy hair that remained so throughout his life. In other photographs, he is playing his guitar and singing folk songs, or he is playing his flute or the recorder. But in this one, 
he is holding fruit. In this photo taken shortly after World War II, he is wearing a nightshirt that comes to the ground. The hem is wet with dew. His feet don't show, so he appears to be floating over the grass. It is dawn and just light enough for my mother to have snapped this picture. Behind him is the orchard. The fruit he is cradling, should it have been peaches, would later be sliced over cereal, then covered with thick cream from our small herd of Guernsey cows. Later in the day, more fruit would become a pie. My parents made and ate a lot of pies before they had a family. Yes. And shortly thereafter, you write that once they did have a family and a series of farms in New York and Connecticut and Ohio, things changed. So you describe the photo of your mother like this. There's a photo of my mother shucking corn in the yard, a bunch of small kids playing around her. She looks happy. But later, she told me that her truly happiest moment was saying goodbye to her pressure cooker and candy. <laughs> when we all left for California. She did what had to be done until she didn't have to do it anymore. So your mother and your father play a very important role in this memoir. They were born a day apart. They were very different people from different backgrounds who parented, as you describe it, in very different ways. And food played a big part in that difference in how you were raised and how you looked at food growing up. Can you talk to us about that, the difference between how your parents looked at food and how that colored your vision? Sure. My father was very generous with food. Um, he loved succulent food. He was from the Midwest. My mother kind of liked the idea of food, but for her, she was very parsimonious and um, she held back a lot. And I think she took money from the food budget to make sure that her kids were all cultured and we had art lessons and music lessons, dance lessons, and so forth. And of course, the irony is that we're all involved with food <laughs> and, and none of us, except my little brother, whom she totally ignored because she was too tired, he, he actually does play music. Yeah, my parents were very different and I grew up feeling very bifurcated and torn apart. I, I didn't know anything about food or money or, or how you got it or I was very confused until fairly recently, actually. And that brings us back to, um, for me, in this book, you, various chapters, you go back and forth in time over your life, but there's chapters that are devoted to your, your childhood, to the 20 lost years. And I love the chapter about your teen and preteen years in Davis, California, where you talk about your food education as you branched out on your own away from your parents, um, that you went to food, tasting food in restaurants that you'd never tried before, and about going alone into San Francisco. Can you share with us a little bit more about your memories of being a young woman and going into the city by yourself? Oh, sure. Uh, I love to go to San Francisco. <laughs> and I, I knew it a little bit from trips with my family, but it was more exciting going alone and I would go to City Lights bookstore and I'd go across the street and have some espresso. 
and then go out to Clement Street maybe and to the Surf Theater to see an art movie because I was very interested in film at that time. And then um, Clement Street was filled with wonderful Russian restaurants, Chinese restaurants. And, and if you went downtown to Grant Street, you could look into a, a, chi a Chinese fortune cookie factory and watch fortune cookies being made, which was fascinating. There's a still a place here in Seattle where you can do that. Really? Yes, right here huh. in Seattle. So anyway, it was it was fascinating to watch those little cakes move along over candles or whatever they had. And, and then the, to watch a man deftly remove a cookie, put a fortune in it, fold it, and so forth and so on. Yeah, and you, you also talked about uh, tasting things for the first time and then recreating them, like piroshki, I think. Oh, yeah, piroshki. Yeah, those were wonderful little little pastries that were yeasted dough on the outside folded kind of like an empanada actually and folded over ground meat it was wonderful they were really good and i used to make them by the by the hundreds actually for all kinds of things but when i was a college student in art school we used to have bronze castings and I would, and then we have a party afterwards and I would make them for that. It's fascinating to me that you, you really didn't know anything about cooking. You fell into cooking. Let's hear about that a little bit about you, you landed at the Zen center in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about how you came to be a cook? Yeah, I didn't know anything about cooking, and I certainly never aspired to be a cook or a chef, because at that time, people who worked in restaurants were mainly of criminal, you know, background or something, you know, and it wasn't, it was not a, a thing that we, that it is today, you know, where a chef is something really important. So I just cooked, and and, you know, an age, like an ordinary person. And then I, I went to Chez Panisse when I was, I don't know, in my 30s or so. And I thought, this is the food I've been looking for and I want to know about. And so Alice invited me to work there. And I started the next day. And it was so exciting. And their people were chefs, although they had a lot of other interests beforehand. They had degrees in anthropology or languages or, or something or other. You well, know. you know, I, I think that's very true today. Of I mean, I waited tables myself for nearly 20 years in my first incarnation as a worker. And I think the people I met in restaurants, the people I worked with, like you're saying, were so fascinating because they had great creative interests and they 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 were educated some you know mm -hmm. in a variety of ways. I mean, academically and creatively. And yeah, I think that that's was, true. And um, you, when you were at Chez Panisse, um, you write about this pretty lovingly and and said you got your first taste of plenty, really, of generosity and of all kinds of food and especially good food. And you worked with people who have gone on to become very famous in their own right that those of us who know about restaurants and cookbooks would recognize. Mark yes. Miller and, of course, your your friend Alice. This is a part. This is something about the book that I would love you to see if you can answer. You said 
of, of your time there, it was fast and intense and utterly different from the Zen Center kitchens where people worked in silence as they tried to be mindful of what they were doing, taking mindfulness to an absurd point of slowness. And <laughs> you said here, conversation, music, and enjoyment didn't get in the way of concentration and attention to detail. It was hard work, but it was also focused, fast, and fun. And you were just part of that. Like as someone who was a practicing Buddhist monk, yes, and you eventually became ordained, mm -hmm. to, to step outside of that, that was during that time, right? When you first went to Chez Panisse, there was- Yes, it was. I'm fascinated that you could drink a uh, Bill Carcemon after work and, and <laughs> share these wonderful wine vintages with your friends and then go back to the Zen Center. Well, I was young. <laughs> I had a lot of energy. <laughs> but it's the not the energy, but the mindset of oh, yeah. going from one place to another. It was a little bit hard. I mean, I, I did want to sit. Zazen, and that was important to me. But I, you know, I had this job in the across the bay, and that was that. And I wasn't cooking at the Zen Center then, or I think it probably would have driven me nuts because it was so much more fun at Shape and East. But you did go back to Taslahara, where you um, right? I I was the head monk, so I was after greens. I was sent there or told I should go. It was my turn and be the Chuseau. Well, let's let's get back a bit because next up is the thing that so many of us know you from, Greens, the Greens cookbook. Mm -hmm. you no, know you were a chef there, a new one. And this was, opening a restaurant was not something that was in, in your cards. It's kind of just happened to you. It sounded like it was a tough time. Can you think of one story from your tenure there that you just... It was like the worst thing that ever happened to you. It was all hard. It was so, so hard, you know. And um, I, I was always told that the success of the restaurant depended on me. And then when I would be very careful watching the plates as they go out and make, say things like no broccoli trees, no sprouts, no orange, you know, slices on the plate. And if I saw things like that, I'd take them off because I really felt it was important that greens present vegetarian cooking in a very fresh way. I'm sorry to say I've only eaten there once, and but it was a okay. lovely meal. That's why I'm I sorry. haven't eaten there for a very long time myself. I would love to have you, because we're here with the Book Larder, which is just the most wonderful bookstore, cookbook store. And one of the things I love so much about when I get to teach classes there is just being around those cookbooks. They're right around me while I'm talking. And I can say, when when I um, suggest something, I can just go grab a cookbook, which I can kind of do here in my office as well. You got a lot of inspiration very early on, both as a child, later in your job, and still today by cookbooks. Talk a little bit about how important cookbooks were to you and your formation as a cook. Oh, they were very important because I I remember so clearly 
the first cookbook I ever had, which was French. And it showed an apricot tart with burned edges. And I loved that because it was kind of during an era when things were very perfect and untouched by human hands. And this book gave a different feeling. But other books that inspired me were really mostly kind of classic French cookbooks because it was early. It was before Italian food really started going or Moroccan or, or anything that we're used to. Paula Pratt was very important to me. Escoffier was very important. And he still is, actually. I love his desserts. La Russe Gastronomique taught me quite a bit, but I never felt like I was a very creative cook as much as I was a person who really was sensitive to possibilities and, and could find them and tease them out of a classic recipe. There's something that I always say that I believe from what I wrote, you probably feel is how important it is, especially now, to be able to travel without a passport. And cookbooks hmm. provide that for all of us, I think. And it seems that you, you, know, you talked a little bit about that just now. One of the things that you've been spending a lot of time with now is is um, the grain economy, right? Can you talk to us about grains? Grains are so exciting. They're wonderful. And um, I went to grain school first three years ago, and then I went again last year up in Colorado. Tell us about grain school. What is it? It was amazing because we tasted all these breads and and, and dishes made with grains, um, soba made with with milled buckwheat. We learned about milling. We learned about growing. It was so fantastic. We loved it. And um, I see, yay for grade school, says Chris and Shockey to all the panelists. And it was very, very exciting. So based on that excitement that we had, um, a bunch of us who went started growing out grain trials so that we can hopefully one day have a really thriving grain economy here in New Mexico. But it's very, very hard. And if you if you want to have grain shipped to you, oh, it's so expensive. It costs as much as the grain itself, you know. <laughs> so we'd like to make it local. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's happening all over the United States, I think. And certainly mm -hmm. here, you write about um, a little bit about it in your book about uh, Dr. Steve Jones and the Bread Lab. Oh, yeah, he's fantastic. And um, just the, the local grain economy is becoming amazing here. And I, and I know that it's spreading once again throughout the country. And, and it's a wonderful thing. I was pleased to, to read about your take on that. Um, you also, when you finally left California, you left, you left the Zen Center, you were married, then divorced. Yet you remain very close with your first husband and talk about him lovingly in the book. And he introduced you to your present husband, your longtime yeah, husband. Yeah, well, right? <laughs> why not? I mean, we actually, Patrick and I knew each other already. We had met at Zen Center, but we did get together in Santa Fe through Dan's gener generosity, and we were married at his house. Right, a wonderful thing. So, <laughs> And when you got to Santa Fe, I know you lived in Flagstaff for a bit. When you got to Santa Fe, you eventually managed the Santa Fe Farmer's Market. And that is just a glorious farmer's market. If anybody hasn't been there, if you ever get to Santa, Santa Fe in another time, it's really a wonderful market. Talk to us a little bit about that 
part of your life, managing a farmer's market. And obviously you wrote sure. a book about that. That actually happened the day I moved there. I went into town to use the farmer's market because that's why I moved to Santa Fe. And I heard somebody say he could use some help managing the market. And I said, I'm free. I can help you. So I did it. And it was so enlightening. And I worked very hard to accommodate all the farmers as best I could. And But I really felt that in the end, that I was the person who benefited because I was stitched into the life of Northern New Mexico in a way I might not ever had been earlier. And then I wrote a book called Local Flavors based on my my involvement with the market because I thought it was so interesting at that time, the way markets popped up, you know, like mushrooms or something. And they were all run by volunteers There were only 3,000 of them across the country. Now there's about 9,000. So, you know, it was a very exciting time. And I was a traveling teacher then. So I used to tie my teaching jobs to market visits. And finally, I just gave up the teaching and went and went myself. Yeah, that what a wonderful thing. Um, years ago, when I was working for the Seattle Times, and this is when this was new here, I hit a. I, I said you can go to. You don't just have to go to Pike Place Market. You can now go to a farmers market every single day of the week. And I did it. I went Monday, Tuesday, went to a different neighborhood, to a different farmers market, and there mm-hmm. were fewer then than there are now. But it was a fascinating exercise to see what's the same and what's different at each farmers market. Yeah. So as yeah, people, and. We now have a lot of choice. We have very educated farmers that grow, you know, radicchios and things like that. It's sort of more like California for a very short time of the year. But I think that I, I, I really love a small market that everyone's offering zucchini, tomatoes, whatever in our market at one time, or they're offering peas, shito peppers, whatever it is. But um, I like a small market too. Because they usually have in a small market everything you need and you just buy it and go home and then you have your vegetables to cook. Yeah, um, now that it's dark and gray and the neighborhood farmers markets aren't in action, it's been difficult for me to have to go (laughs) into the supermarket. But we have such great supermarkets, as I'm sure you recognize the difference now between what was available to you as a child versus as time progressed and now. Um, But you do talk about what is it, Cordy's in, in in Sacramento? Oh, yeah, Cordy Brothers. I, I've been in that place. It was stunning. It was really a treat to hear you talk about it and think about it from the point of view of someone when it first opened or when it was open, you know, in the 50s. My dad used to shop there after he dropped my mother off to the airport and she'd go back east to visit her family. And he just load up on things. And I think my sister used to work for Daryl. And I've traveled a lot with him and the Old Ways crew to Europe. And he's an incredibly knowledgeable person. His store is wonderful. So I really owe him a debt. Indeed. Hey, um, I'd love to throw this over to some questions from people. Michael would like to know, Deborah, why you decided to write your memoir now. Well, I didn't do it just now. I actually started 15 years ago. 
And I, I was invited to Hedgebrook, which is, I think you must know, it's in Washington State. I went there for a month to write. At a time, I was very depressed because I hadn't gotten a PhD in anything, which and it really could be anything, because I wanted to be more useful in the world. And then after that, month at Hedgebrook, I went to Ireland with Patrick, who had a painting fellowship, and it was a very bleak place in, in the north of Ireland on the Atlantic coast. I had nothing to do, so I wrote, I started a memoir, but I hated it. When I looked at it a year later, oh, I thought, why all this whining and carrying on and so forth? So I decided to stay with it and um, pursue it and see if maybe there was a more positive side to it. And also, I'm 75. I'm through writing cookbooks, I think. And um, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. Well, yeah, I'm I'm sad to hear that this, uh, you might be done writing cookbooks, but... <laughs> You've given, well, you've given us so much. I should never say they're done. I've learned that. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of um, recently published cookbooks, Michael would also like to know if there are any, um, you talked about sort of some of the ones that influenced you early on. What are some of your favorites now? I cook a lot from Otolenghi um, and I cook from my books, which is sort of unusual for a cookbook writer to be able to cook from their own books. <laughs> we don't usually have time. I'm looking around to see what books I like. I love Paul Wolf Wolfert's book on grain and grains and greens and so forth and like that. I see somebody else cooks from my cookbooks too, and I'm so glad. I have one more question for you, Deborah. And it's yes. this. So with every book that anyone writes, as I understand it, something lands on the cutting room floor. Is there anything that your editor determined that you needed to cut out of there for space or any other reason that you wish were still in there? I don't think it was due to my editor and her cutting, but sometimes I remember things or I recall things and I think, oh, I should have put that in. That was important, but maybe not. Actually, she was much more for including chapters than taking them out. And when I said, oh, I have a bunch of chapters that I don't really enjoy reading, and I took them out, and she said, well, let me see them. She said, oh, they need to go in. And they were mostly about the childhood thing and the Crystal Palace Market in San Francisco and things like that. Those were definitely some of my favorite parts of the book for certain. I'm so glad you liked it. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Deborah's memoir is called An Onion in My Pocket. It's available at booklearder.com. Thank you, Nancy, for also hanging in there and uh, leading such a great interview. Deborah, thank you again. Nancy, thank you. I thank you, too. Um, take care, everyone. Stay safe. Many thanks to Deborah Madison for joining us and to Nancy Leeson for leading the conversation. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at Booklarder. 
You can also check out videos from the past year's virtual author talks on BookLarder's YouTube channel. For more information about BookLarder, including virtual author talks, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And when we can travel again, or if you're just here in the city, you can visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North, where we are open by appointment during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening. I hope you stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time.